0: From wise consideration we have the effect of the three right ways of practice. We have considered wisely. It stands to reason that we'll practice correctly. Now, the three right ways of practice mean body, speech and mind. These are also called our three doors. We have nothing else with which to manifest ourselves. And those are the three that we're using. Now, as far as the mind is concerned, we have discussed this quite a bit already, what it does and what it can do. And one of the most succinct explanations of what the mind does and can do, are what are called the four supreme efforts. Not to let an unwholesome thought arise, which has not yet arisen. Not to let an unwholesome thought continue, which has already arisen. To make a wholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen. To make a wholesome thought continue which has already arisen. If we keep doing that continually, we should never have any problems in our lives. Not one single moment of it. However, we don't do it. and even when we know about it, we will find it difficult to do. First of all, because we forget. Secondly, because we rationalize and justify. And also because it isn't as easy as it sounds. It's simple enough, the explanation, but in order to do it we need a strong mind a mind that has muscle power a way to get a mind that has muscle power is to make it stand still in meditation to stop it from all that external proliferation to stop it from all its self-willed and self-supportive thinking to finally become master of the mind. Now the more muscle power we have in the mind through our meditative practice, the easier it will be to follow this particular instruction of the Buddha. The first thing is to know about it. Then the next thing is to contemplate it. Is this something I want to do? And the third thing is, if I have decided I want to do it, is to remember it. Having done those three, we've already done more than most people. There are very few people who remember it. If you come again next year and I'll ask you, I'll find out how many remember it. It's really simple. But if we don't remember it, how can we do anything about it? After having remembered it, we might make a determination to do it. Sounds good, I'll try it. And then, when we try it, is the time when we actually get to know what our mind does. The right way of practice is just that, exactly that. Those four supreme efforts. uh, They're called supreme because they're difficult, but also supremely beneficial. The most difficult one of the four is to become aware of the unwholesome thought that has not yet arisen. Most people wouldn't know where to start with that one. However, it's not as complicated as one may think. The unwholesome thought, which is either connected with greed or with hate, with wanting or rejecting, sends ahead, like a messenger boy, an unpleasant feeling. A feeling which could be described as foggy, heavy, even aggressive. A feeling arises within which does not, does not feel pleasant or comfortable. Now if one becomes aware of that and knows oneself well enough one knows this is a danger signal the next thing that's going to happen is an unwholesome thought. So if one has practiced sufficiently one stops it right then and there and puts one's mind on a wholesome thought substitutes one for the other, just like we do in meditation, when we've been thinking, 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 and finally realize we have, and substitute the attention on the breath with the thought. We've learned substitution. This is the same thing, substitution. In other words, because of our meditative practice, we no longer believe everything the mind is pleased to throw up. If we have been labeling at least part of the time, we should know by now that practically all of the thoughts that arise are useless, not beneficial, only disturbing, and very often without any basis to them. Fragmentary thought pieces floating around in the mind. Now, if we've been labeling properly, we know that about the mind. So we're no longer inclined to believe what the mind says, but we are inclined to be objective and know whether it's wholesome or unwholesome. If we cannot tell the difference between wholesome or unwholesome, we have to go back to kindergarten. That's where they started telling us. There is no intelligent person that doesn't know that what's wholesome and what is unwholesome. And we don't only know it, we feel it. So the, the first one is difficult. To know that this unwholesome thought is in the offering, it's coming. It's wanting to find a place where it can spread itself. But we don't have to allow that. The next one is much easier when an unwholesome thought has already arisen, we ought to be able to tell. The unwholesome thought which has arisen has some sort of negative idea about it. And it certainly doesn't bring peacefulness. It creates an inner feeling of agitation all unwholesome thoughts do. And if they're subtle, they create a subtle agitation. If they're gross, it's a gross agitation. If we get violently angry, we're violently agitated. If we're mildly irritated, we're mildly agitated only. If we dislike and whatever it may be, the weather or the person or anything. And we are not practiced at knowing ourselves, at looking inside of ourselves. We may not even be aware of this agitation because we may be so habitually beset by it that we don't even know that there's another way possible. That happens to people who habitually think negatively. When that is the case, that we don't even know that it could be different, there's still an underlying yearning in such a person to have it different. But because the thought processes are so habitually negative, very difficult to find a way out. In other words, it takes discrimination and objectivity about our own thinking. We will never have harmony and peacefulness in our life if we can't create it within our own thinking process. Nobody else will ever create it for us. They're either busy doing it for themselves or they haven't even heard about it yet and they certainly can't do anything about our own thinking. It's hard enough to do something for oneself in that respect. So if we have had at at least enough awareness to know when we're thinking negatively, we must also realize that A slight negativity is still a negativity. A slight rejection, a slight resistance, a slight dislike, a slight fear, worry, restlessness. All these are negative. Skeptical doubt is negative, but inquiry is not. One's got to know the difference. A person who has skeptical doubt is a person who cannot, for the lack of love, commit him or herself to anything or anyone. Love is missing. A person with skeptical doubt doesn't even inquire A person with skeptical doubt just wants to find what's wrong. Inquiry is trying to ascertain whether that what one has heard or read applies to oneself. Ascertain it within, not outside. That's inquiry, which is essential. The Buddha compared skeptical doubt with being in the desert without a road map and without provisions going around in circles and eventually being overrun by bandits. Skeptical doubt goes around in circles because it only wants to find what's wrong and also wants to find it outside of oneself not insight so those that particular mental formation is also negative inquiry is positive positive. and since they appear to be similar the one who hasn't much insight into him or herself may actually think that the skeptical doubt is inquiry they have a similarity but only a superficial one. When we have at least enough discrimination and inner attention to realize now this is a negative thought, we must at the same time have enough understanding that this negative thought does nothing but make us ourselves unhappy. Other people may just realize that we're very negative and leave it at that, or they may not even realize that much. They may have no interest at all. The one who gets hurt is the one who's got it. We can't do anything with our negativities to really do anything to other people unless we start attacking them physically the one that's getting hurt all the time are we ourselves if somebody else reacts that's their problem so it really stays within our own mind and if we have finally realized that we are the ones that are making ourselves unhappy, we may come to the conclusion that it's quite intelligent to call ourselves a fool and start from there. If we can't bear to do that, well, one day we might. That kind of honesty to oneself, about oneself, helps greatly to stop that kind of foolishness. We have learned substitution from the negative to the positive through our substitution and meditation. There are other ways and means of getting rid of that which is unwholesome. The Buddha explained different ways of doing that. The first one is the substitution. The second one is shame. We would never like to be seen with a dirty face or dirty clothes, but we don't mind to be seen with unwholesome thoughts because we have the idea that they're invisible they're not. They're written on the expression of our face. And they are embedded in the tone of our voice. And they are shown in our body language. They're as clear as a bell. And yet we all think that our thoughts are hidden we should be just as ashamed to carry those around as we would be ashamed to run around in tatters or dirty clothes or unwashed. We can use that as a much stronger incentive to change the unwholesome to the wholesome if the substitution hasn't worked. Substitution is gentle. If that doesn't work, we must use something stronger, this is the next strongest. The next one after that, if that also hasn't worked, is to take our attention off it deliberately and put it somewhere else. In other words, we take our attention off the unwholesome and put it on something wholesome. with determination. That determination is lacking with many in meditation. It's exactly the same process. If we can't do it gently with just substituting the breath for the thought and we don't feel any particular shame about being so distracted because we've heard that that's quite normal, then at least we could use the action of taking our attention off the one thing that is disturbing and putting it on the other, which is pacifying, away from the thought, back to the breath. In daily living, we practice through good practice of mind is taking it from the unwholesome to the wholesome if that also doesn't work then we can start looking at ourselves and seeing how uncomfortable it makes us how very uncomfortable it is to be so negative to not know the pure direction in our mind to be so unsure and therefore fall into these errors makes us uncomfortable, makes us anxious, and also fearful and therefore aggressive. If we can see that discomfort, that is enough also to induce us to become comfortable. with our our thoughts and if none of that has worked then we should get rid of that unwholesome thought by force by forcing it out of the mind and thereby leaving room to put in a wholesome one this is a last resort anything is better than keeping it there unwholesome thoughts are the precursors of unwholesome speech and unwholesome action. So, in the last analysis, unwholesome thoughts are the beginnings of war. On an international scale or on a family scale or just internal within oneself, or with the person next to one, wherever one has a chance to wage war. The unwholesome thought is the beginning of that. Anything is better than war. If we then have managed to arouse a wholesome thought, we should try with all our might to keep it there. Now what does that tell us about our mind? First of all, it tells us that we need to get in charge of it, that we should no longer allow it to do what it pleases, that it can be changed at will, and that if we do that, we can only benefit ourselves and others, that there are never any justifications, rationalizations for the unwholesomeness. There is no such thing. There's only our own inner impurity, which brings it out. These four supreme efforts are also four of the 37 factors of enlightenment. So you can see that they are extremely important. And they are often mentioned as right effort, which is one of the steps on the Noble Eightfold Path. Mind is the master. The first line of the Dhammapada, sayings of the Buddha, Whatever we do with our mind, that's what will happen to us. Not only do we make karma with the mind, but we continue on from the mind, from the thought. If we sit here and we make a strong determination, I'm going to get concentrated, I'm really going to meditate now, I'm responsible for my own happiness, I can assure you it works better. If I sit there and think to myself, I can't do this. This is, this is much too difficult. Should have gone to the beach. I can assure you it won't work. It can't. How can it? The same mind that wants to go to the beach is the one that's trying to meditate. We haven't got two minds. There's one only one that gets into meditation and one that's arguing about it or the other the other and the other side the one that's determined whatever we allow our mind to do that's what happens to us the whole thing is self generated our own responsibility and Possible to change. If it wasn't possible to change, there's no use to even discuss the matter. Once the Buddha said, Monks, if it wasn't possible to do only the good, I wouldn't ask you to do so. It is possible. All of us have all the uh, abilities and the faculties within. Partially, we're unaware of it. Partially, we're too lazy to do anything about it. And partially, we haven't heard about it. A combination which has a result of a continuation of the human problems which we solve one by one and get a new one, the merry-go-round on which we find ourselves. If one wants to meditate, for whatever reason, it's usually the wrong one, it doesn't matter. One needs determination to do so. Nobody can have determination for somebody else. If one wants to meditate in order to get some peace in the mind, that's fine. One wants to meditate because one wants to see a little clearer, that's also fine, it doesn't really matter. Because as soon as the mind becomes meditative capable, it sees things quite differently everything changes constantly. One's just got to get a go on it. So we have these four supreme efforts which are the right way of practice for mind. The most important thing to know about. Because from that, everything else generates. Now when we look at body and speech, we have the five precepts they're concerned with our actions and our speech and they give us the bare minimum of human behavior which creates harmlessness and doesn't create any fear and agitation in others But besides trying to avoid those five unwholesome things, we also need to practice their opposites. The first one of the five precepts is to undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. That includes all living beings and it is designed to minimize our hate and dislike. So obviously, we need to practice loving-kindness as its counterpart. Now these are actions of body counteracted by actions of mind, generated by mind, loving-kindness generated by heart and mind, will then counteract our inborn root of hate. We all have the good and the bad within, all we have to do is make a proper distinction. Sometimes people say, well, you accept whatever arises. Sounds good, doesn't it? It could go so far that one finds within oneself there has arisen the wish to kill somebody. Wonderful to accept that, isn't it? The spiritual path has to be based upon moral conduct. Otherwise, we haven't got a chance. And most people are quite willing and able to live within most of those five precepts. To keep all of them is effort. And... That's also right effort. I've already talked about our hate and the opposite, our loving-kindness possibilities. And the next one I've already mentioned also, it's to undertake the training to refrain from taking what's not given. The opposite is generosity. Not to take what is not given, means that we look upon other people's belongings as if they were our own and use them carefully, Are as careful with them as if if they were our own. If we happen to be in somebody else's house, as we're here, we are careful with the things. And if we see small things lying about that nobody seems to want, we don't take them they haven't been given to us. To be scrupulous about it. Not to want, but to give. I have already discussed generosity at some length this morning. The next one is to undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. Now, that goes further than just not being unfaithful. It also concerns our trustworthiness and reliability under all circumstances. If we promise to do something, we will do it. If we are responsible for something, we will not try to get out of that. if we have any kind of relationship with other people, we behave in a way that they can rely on us. If we are not like that, we can't even rely on ourselves. That unease of not being able to rely on oneself because one doesn't know what one's gonna do It's very uncomfortable So it doesn't only concern a sexual relationship it concerns all relationships with other people One is also faithful to one's friends to one's family to one's employer to one's co-workers reliable and trustworthy This is something that one can sense in another person. One can sense whom one can ask to help. It goes along the lines of being a good friend. It's all bound up in a solid, straightforward, dependable character. Something we can all acquire We all have that potential. Trying to get out of things is egocentricity. I don't want to be bothered. It takes up too much time. It takes up too much energy. Why should I do it? Why don't they do it? The last one is very common, especially when people live together. Why should I always have to do it? Let somebody else do it. Well, and then nobody does it. It's not a kind of feeling within which generates contentment. If one has tried one's very best, one feels contented. And one can always do just a tiny little bit better. We should not be discontented with our own effort, but we should also not rest on our laurels. It is very satisfying to try whatever it is that one is doing, as well as one can, and then just a little bit better. Sexual misconduct creates havoc in families and relationships, and it usually has very traumatic psychological aftermath where people feel extremely put down or used badly. When others do it, and we are involved, We need to learn that it is the other person's responsibility, what they're doing, have compassion for the bad karma they are creating. Our own reaction to it is our own business. And we can learn to react in a manner which is compassionate rather than angry, if we want to help ourselves. The fourth one is to undertake the training to refrain from wrong speech which is in the first place lying, harsh speech, backbiting, gossiping and idle chatter. That last one is of course the hardest one. The opposite of that of course is right speech. Lying is often condoned because we call it little white lies which are necessary in society. We should never allow ourselves to go along with that myth. Idle shatter is the one that practically everybody falls down on. It is talking for talking's sake instead of talking about something which will be helpful, uplifting, descriptive <coughs> or even teach us something. If we are continually in a situations where people chatter idly about unimportant or even unwholesome matters, it will be up to us to change the subject. If we couldn't change things, we wouldn't need to practice. The Buddha gave a very interesting formula about right speech, which is very helpful to remember he said like this, If we know something that can be helpful and is untrue, don't say it. If we know something that can be hurtful and is untrue, don't say it. If we know something that is could be hurtful and is true, don't say it. And if we know something that could be helpful and is true, then find the right time. Which takes away impulses and spontaneous replies and make us think whether it's helpful, whether it's true, and whether the right time has come. The right time for that kind of speech comes when both people are willing to discuss the matter and when the one who wants to speak has only loving kindness in his or her heart so that no inkling of any criticism or blame or anger can be felt that it is quite clear that it's only helpfulness now if everyone were to use speech in that manner we would have much better relationships with each other where it counts because most people do not consider this these points Speech is often a cause for enmity or for anxiety. And very often we also hear the words with our own interpretation. And that is another thing that we need to become aware of when we want to use right speech and React rightly to speech. When we hear something, we are very prone to project our own way of thinking to those words. And that can be either making them untrue or hurtful. They can be quite plain and neutral and we can make them into something that has an impact that can often be our own projection. And if we know that, that the mind is doing that, our own mind, we should reconsider and analyze the words just as they are. And we will not fall into the error of feeling hurt by something somebody else has said, no matter what it is because whatever the other person is saying, that's their speech. The way we react, that's our reaction. We can't own their speech, but we've got to own our own reaction. So whatever is being said, that belongs to the speaker. The reaction belongs to the listener. We can change our reaction by seeing that either it was an unskillful speech so we can have compassion, or that we are projecting. Speech is a very important aspect of the human relationship and is mentioned by the Buddha more than once. It is also one step on the Noble Eightfold Path. It is uh, mentioned many times in the suttas loving speech is a sign of a good friend and it is mentioned so often because we do so much of it usually we don't have silent meditation retreats usually we talk talk all day long so as we do so much of it it is important to become skillful at it the skill that we can acquire is open to anyone, it's not the skill of an orator. It's a skill of having the mind without harshness and without dislike, without aggression and resistance. And if that has been done, the speech will be fine. And the last one is to undertake the training, to refrain from drugs and intoxicating drinks. The opposite of that is mindfulness. Now, drugs and drinks can confuse the mind even more than it is already, and mindfulness will clear the mind. Our practice of the opposite is the right way of practice for body and speech and the four supreme efforts the right way of practice for the mind if we do that if we keep that as our guideline those precepts and their opposites and the four supreme efforts we have a spiritual practice We don't need a teacher in our daily lives, because that's where all those things happen in our daily lives, from morning till night. A spiritual path has to be practiced in daily life, where else, when else. Certainly not on a weekend, that's only explanation of it. The practice is our life. And as we do it, in the beginning it may appear a bit difficult because we're not used to it. We become used to it, like we do get used to everything. This means creating good habits. As we have been creating other habits, these can be created too. One of the very definite signs for the fact that there is no core substance within us is a fact that we can change ourselves completely. We don't have to be the way we are now and we're certainly not anymore the way we used to be we have already changed and it's a matter of establishing these good habits by remembering and by realizing that it doesn't feel good or comfortable or pleasant when we go against these instructions they are not instructions that we must do something. There are guidelines for our own happiness. If we can see that, that this will produce our own happiness, then we would be foolish not to try and follow them. We mustn't think that there is only black and white. There is either the lack of these abilities or the perfection of them. Neither the one nor the other holds true. All of us are doing some of this. We are using some skillful speech. We're certainly not killing other people. And we may be changing our mind from the wholesome to the from the unwholesome to the wholesome Sometimes the perfection of that is a matter of enlightenment. So what we can do is work on it so that it develops more, that we have more of the wholesome and less of the unwholesome. It's neither nothing nor all. The all is something that is laid out as a guideline but not something that we can accomplish now we have to be clear on that and we need a bit of a discriminating mind to realize what it, what it means to practice a practice doesn't mean that one can already do it practicing means that one is trying if we do that we have a direction in our life a direction other than getting pleasure That direction is satisfying because we're realizing that we're gaining ground and that the ease with which we live has increased and that we have often been able to go against instinct and impulse and realize what is really true and good. This is a satisfying direction. How far we get in it, well, it's up to each person. That's no criteria, the distance we go. The criteria is the trying of every step on the way. These are the three right ways of practice. And they are possibly a succinct explanation of what we can do in our daily lives. Which we shall start again tomorrow. So that's enough for this evening. If you have any questions, you can ask now. Mm-hmm. The uh, first spring effort of um, not allowing an unwholesome thought to arise, doing it by substituting a wholesome thought. It? That can be any wholesome thought. It mm. doesn't have to relate to the unreasoned no. unwholesome thought. Anything. Anything at all. So it's more a distraction? No. Taking your attention off and putting it somewhere else. If you're getting distracted, you can be just as unwholesome as you were before. <laughs> and distraction is not wholesome. You don't have your attention on anything yet, it's a feeling you can have But you, now you know, you understand the feeling Once you have the feeling, that's the experience The only way you can do anything with an experience if you've understood it <coughs> So since you've understood it, you're going to do something Change your mind We've got it in our speech, I've just changed my mind People do it constantly. It's supposed to be a prerogative of ladies, but uh, I've never found that so. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes? Could you repeat the process of detecting an unholster of before it has arisen? Before it has arisen? Yes, well, that's what he was just mentioning that it sends ahead an unpleasant feeling the feeling is um, well it can be anything it can be foggy heavy um, dull it's very often a dull feeling instead of being bright and interested and creative and um, um, joyous and buoyant it's the opposite of all that feel dull and heavy and um, disinterested and um, can even be anxiety already in it but usually it's not that strong it's more of uh, where the mind just sort of seems to be sliding into a downward um, direction yes is is there a danger that um, we take our mind off the unwholesome thought that we might suppress it beneath the surface and hence give more power to it. Well, you can only take it off the unwholesome thought if you already know that it's there or that it's coming. You can only do something with that what you know. You see, the one that hasn't arisen yet, that... <coughs> that you're changing your mind from that has no reason that hasn't got any power unless it arises. Is there a Buddhist concept of the subconsciousness? The Buddha said, we have that much to do with our conscious. Let's get that one cleared out. <laughs> get that one purified and we'll worry about the next one. In fact, he fit, the way he taught was that if you purify your consciousness then your subconscious is immediately purified too there's nothing else to do because your consciousness is that which has a power over the subconscious it's not the other way around that's um, what sometimes thought like that and it's a poor excuse for our consciousness But when you have an unwholesome thought, which has already arisen, that already gets some strength, because it's there. And it can already do damage. So the quicker we change, the better. Because that can, you see, if you... You can tell that about gossip, for instance. Or in a courtroom. If you put a... say something which is negative, and it's definitely shown afterwards that it wasn't true, it still has influence because it has been said, even though it was untrue. And uh, that holds true for gossip and holds true for sometimes in legal matters. It holds true for anything. So the, uh, the thought which has already arisen has great strength. So change it as quickly as possible. The one that hasn't arisen yet, hasn't done any harm yet. So don't allow it to do any harm. And that's the thought, that is the idea behind it. That clear? But if you're worried about the subconscious and because of that, let the unwholesome thought arise, well, that's your only other alternative, isn't it? well if you think of the subconscious almost like the um, soil from which these uh, thoughts come out I'm wondering sometimes if it wouldn't be better to get down and weed it out first you weed the, the... the conscious out you weed the conscious out that's that's the thing the way you can see the weeds in the subconscious I doubt whether you'll find them you find them in the conscious and in that what is negative that's your weeds and those get weeded out, and then you're fine. Yes? I can, if there's a particular emotion that arises in response to a recurring situation in life, is there any point at all exploring the situation as such? Um... Well, if you can just change your reaction to it, that would of course be the simplest, wouldn't it? And the quickest. And if that works, that's great. But if it doesn't work, then one has to question the reason for the reaction. Why am I reacting like that? Well, obviously because I don't like the situation, but why don't I like it? And then keep on finding out more and more about it. But if you can, just change, well, that's better. See, the quicker we change from the unwholesome to the wholesome, the less damage we do to the jewel of our mind. And mind is a jewel which we do not protect enough. It gets scratched and dirty all the time. And the more we allow that to happen, the more work we have to clean it up. So the less, we allow it to happen, the easier it is for us. So if you can do that, that's fine. Sometimes it's not possible. And then you find out about it. Yes? How how does one tell if one is guarding one's happiness or if one is believed for comfort? It's not so easy, is it? (laughs) Well, one has to first find out whether comfort spells happiness. First you have to find out what is happiness. Is comfort synonymous with happiness? If you have found out that it isn't, then you don't have that question anymore. It's very important to first find out what does it mean for me, what does happiness mean for me? And then we can, you know, protect it. Um, mm-hmm. um, how do I do what? Ah, yes, to meditation. Okay. In, in meditation, every thought can be considered to be unwholesome even though it may not be unwholesome in a sense of our daily living but it certainly d- destroys the concentration so in that way it has unwholesomeness so we don't try to work out whether that particular thought now was about something good or something bad it's destroying our concentration, so we dis- we uh, substitute with the breath. However, the labeling process helps us to get a grip on what we are thinking. We're getting a grip on the fact whether there are weeds there or not, and then we can use that labeling process in daily living to see which one has arisen. But in meditation, we try to substitute or get rid of by, by putting the breath back in the attention. And if we can't um, substitute and if we can't think that it's shameful that we're sitting here and not concentrating then maybe we can uh, think that um, we could um, take our attention off deliberately pull our attention away from one footer to the other Or we can become aware how uncomfortable it is if we are constantly thinking instead of getting concentrated. So these are the ways of getting rid of the um, distracting thoughts. But the efforts in meditation, has only one effort, substituting all thoughts. Well, I should hope so, if you can. Why should you let everything arise in meditation? If you want to become concentrated, then and you want to become get to serenity, you want to keep your mind at all cost on the meditation subject. Because during daily life everything arises. Why should you be the same in meditation? To become concentrated one-pointed change of consciousness you've got to stick to it certainly you don't let anything arise if you can forestall it if you've got enough presence of mind to let everything arise is our usual way of dealing with the matter that's our usual way of living everything arises constantly no pause very tiring What else? Any else? Yes, there's a hand back there. Uh, Ah, um, Not to use harsh words, not to uh, um, gossip, backbite, or idle chatter. It's all part of wrong speech. Is that what you were asking? Yes. Yeah, right. Anything else? Yes? How can you tell the difference between let's be in thought? Let's be where you've from someone else, thought where it's directed or generated by your Well, I don't know that you can. I have no idea. I don't know that you can tell the difference. I, I wouldn't know. I I only know that you can know what you're thinking whether you know that what you you mean that you are receiving a thought from somebody else that's that's not telepathy and telepathy is that when you can have a communication with each other without verbalization and uh that should be quite clear. That one can be aware of. But you are talking about having a thought put into your mind by somebody else. Communication. Oh, yeah. oh that's uh, that's easily known. I mean, you're communicating. The communication, what you get, is not the same as what you give it's a telephone conversation without the telephone <laughs> 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 that's simple enough <laughs> yes it's just simple to say that all the moral precepts um, uh, which is down to the basic one of, uh, or the question to be asked whether this action or speech or it be <coughs> in some way? Well it's an, it can be an action of thought, speech or body. It can be one of one of those three and yes, we can reduce it to that whether that it should not be harmful. but it can be in the five precepts, it's concerning speech and body. And the other one, the four supreme efforts, concerns the mind. Now, obviously, speech and body is generated by mind, but the five precepts particularly direct themselves to speech and body. So we can reduce it to that, yes, and say it should not be harmful. But the Buddha detailed it a little more so that there was no question what he thought was particularly harmful anything else? Okay. yes yeah, yeah. should, should what is, what is sorry I didn't get the beginning of this yes what is the oh right um, to uh, Sit nicely in a in a quiet place and either take the precept again in the wording that we use or just to make the determination not to break it again. And one can do that all by oneself. Or if if one doesn't think that's strong enough, if there's monk or nun around, one can take the precept in a formal manner, but one can do it to oneself. There is room for regret. No, regret is, uh, well, it comes up by itself, but uh, it is uh, also negative. The positive aspect is to make a determination not to repeat it. The um, regret has already been there because of the fact that it has happened, but then that should be stopped as quick as possible, because that's also negative and can be very um, damaging to one's own peace of mind. So the positive is determination not to do it again. Learning from that situation, using it as a learning base, uh, how vulnerable one is, how dangerous it is all the time for oneself to stay on the straight and narrow. physical pain. You mean in meditation? Yes. Yes, it can. It uh, can be strong enough so that the mind can uh, use it as a focus of attention. And if one stays on it long enough, it will go away. But one has to be quite patient. It will go away eventually. But it can be, um, it can be helpful in getting the mind concentrated. Not everybody can use it. But many people can. right, anything else? Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. imagine you have a sun shining in your heart and It gives warmth and light Fills you with joy And it surrounds you with the rays Which are loving and protective Let the rays of the sun from your heart reach out to the person nearest you. Fill him or her with the warmth and the light and the joy come from your heart. And surround him or her with love and care. Let the sun from your heart shine on everyone here, filling everyone with warmth and light and joy, surrounding everyone with the rays of love. Think of all the people who are near and dear to you, let the sun from your heart shine on them, giving them light, warmth, joy, growth, surrounding them with love. of all your good friends let the rays of the sun from your heart reach out to them giving them light, love, warmth joy and growth filling them with these, surrounding them with them as a gift from your heart Think of all the people you know that you see now and then. Let them all arise before your mind's eye. Let the sun from your heart shine on all of them, irrespective who they are giving them warmth and light and love and joy as your gift to them of anyone whom you find difficult realize that the sun shines on everyone irrespective of who they are so let the sun from your heart shine on that person too giving warmth and light and joy and growth and love Open your heart as wide as you can. Let the sun from your heart grow as much as it will. And reach out with its rays as far as it will go, giving warmth and light and joy and love to as many people as it can reach. let it go to people near and far put your attention back on yourself and feel the contentment that comes from right effort and the joy that comes from giving and loving fill yourself with the warmth and the light from the Sun in your heart being completely drenched in it and surrounded by it beings have love in their hearts.